I turn your attention to the book of uh, Acts chapter 17, and we begin our reading in verse 18, Acts chapter 17 and verse 18. This is the chapter where Paul, who was spearheading all of the missionary trips as the gospel was moving from the Jerusalem area to European nations, and there was a tremendous revival as the Gentiles were being welcomed and converted into Christianity. This particular place, he is is gone to Athens, and Athens was sort of the Harvard of the day, and was kind of the the learning center, and a lot of philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, names that you would be familiar with, came out of this particular culture. We pick it up in verse 18, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, referring to Paul, and some said, what will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a set of forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Other times he would be brought and be beaten by the magistrate or whatever, but in this particular environment they were curious. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know therefore what these things mean for all the Athenians and strangers which were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. Mars Hill's a, a little hill there that's part of the Acropolis, sort of in the shadow of the Parthenon there in, in Athens, still there. I've stood on it. It's, it's an area where they would have different people come and speak. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now what he passed by and saw was all of those temples. But the way Paul framed it, he was non-offensive. He said, When I beheld your devotions... I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. They, they worship so many different gods, they want to make sure they don't leave anybody out. So they have an altar to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Now he wasn't being insulted here, just saying you worship a God that you don't know. That's why you called it the unknown God. Ignorantly means just unknown. Him declare I unto you. I've come to tell you who you've been worshiping and you don't even know who it is. I've come to tell you who that is. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he's Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples, made with hands, neither is worship, with men's hands as though he needed anything. I said this in the earlier service, I want to say it here again today. We need to sometimes remind ourselves that God does not need our worship. He's not some insecure God on an ego trip that needs everybody to come around and fan him and say, what a great God you are, what a great God you are. He's God all by himself. All of creation praises God. He doesn't need you or I. We worship him because of what it does for us. Paul said he, he doesn't need anything. See, he giveth to all life and breath and all things and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He's God, not us. That they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him 
and find him though he be not far from every one of us Paul was telling them then and I'm encouraged when I read it again today he's not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said he quoted their own poets for we are his offspring for as much then as we are the offspring of God we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device in the times of this ignorance God winked at but now now that you know who he is commandeth all men everywhere to repent once you know who he is it is incumbent upon all of us to repent I want to speak this morning on this subject the dawn of a new decade would you bow your heads and pray Lord we're thankful for your presence thankful for your spirit thankful for your anointing that we feel in this house we pray God that you would anoint our hearts and minds to receive your word and we'll give you praise for all things in Jesus name you may be seated and thank you for standing much of what I want to talk to you about today comes from a book that I'm reading by our uh, general superintendent dr. David Bernard it's entitled apostolic identity in a postmodern world if you're interested in some of the things that I'll refer to today I would encourage you to get that book apostolic identity in a postmodern world in the pre-modern world which was before 1500 people typically would base their lives on a belief in truth including the supernatural they accepted truth on the basis of revelation authority and tradition and while they typically believed in God their belief was flawed by superstition faulty human authority and even unbiblical traditions in the modern era under the influence of the Renaissance and the entitlement or the enlightenment rather that took place after the Renaissance people begin to seek truth through empirical investigation through rationalization and through scientific methods human reasoning became the ultimate standard of truth and while this approach led to significant advances in science and technology and government and economics and even theology it also led many to abandoned faith in God because you had two different extremes on one side you had the liberal theologians that adapted Christianity to the demands of secular thought and then on the other side you had fundamentalists who relied, who relied primarily on reason to refute their claims and both sides were minimizing the contemporary work of God's Spirit which was working then and is continuing to work today Influential thinkers during this modern era sought to eliminate God's role in different areas of discipline and study, such as biology, which we know through the writings of Charles Darwin. They sought to eliminate God's role in history, Karl Marx, and even through psychology, Sigmund Freud. Many people believed that human society at this time was progressing toward a utopia in which reason would eventually conquer all the evils of our world such as poverty and war and eliminate the need for religion contrary to these expectations the 20th century brought unprecedented disaster the seemingly most advanced nations fought World War one where 16 million people died World War two instigated by the atheistic fascisms of Hitler resulted in 48 million deaths 
And then under Lenin and Stalin and Mao, communism, another atheistic philosophy caused the deaths of nearly 100 million people. It became increasingly evident that human reasoning did not have all of the answers. Human needs, both individual and social, could not be met by rationalism alone. Consequently, the latter half of the 20th century gave birth to what we are a part of today known as postmodernism. Postmodernism is skeptical of any universal truth claim. Postmodernism emphasizes that all human understanding is subjective, it's contingent, and it's culturally relevant. It views truth claims as tools to persuade or to gain power. Thus, it distrusts, appeals to authority and to absolute truth, but it accepts everyone's stories and opinions as valid in some way. While it undermines biblical authority, it opens people to new ideas, personal testimonies, and spiritual experiences. Postmodern thinkers typically are not persuaded by a logical argument that is based on scripture alone. Of course, this philosophy is self-refuting, for it makes an absolute truth claim while refuting all absolute truth claims. When people say that there is no absolute truth, how do they know that what they are saying is true? If they adopt this philosophy as the guiding principle of their lives, then in effect they treat it as an absolute truth. The prevailing value of postmodern society is tolerance. Tolerance is good when it means treating our neighbor right, for Jesus told us to love our neighbors as ourselves. But our society has redefined tolerance to mean that all beliefs and all lifestyles are equal in value. In other words, there is no absolute right or wrong. There is no objective morality. Everyone's choice is valid. This view, ladies and gentlemen, is false. It is also self-refuting. Because people that hold this view are tolerant of every belief except the belief in objective morality. They can tolerate various religions and lifestyles, but there is no tolerance for people who believe in biblical doctrine, holiness, and morality. So it becomes a self-refuting claim. And all of this serves as a backdrop to the mission of the gospel as we enter 2000. And 20. Much has been made about the fact that 2020 is a great reminder of the importance of vision. We talk about that, you've seen it a lot. 2020 being the year reminds us of vision, 2020 being perfect vision, that we must go forward and have vision. And certainly that's true. The Bible says, without a vision, the people perish. But before we launch into vision, which we're going to be talking about in terms of the guidance and direction of our church next week. It is important for us to consider that our values determine our vision. Our desires determine our direction. Our goals are determined by our roles. So we must first stop and say what's important. What really matters? Why are we doing what we do? Because for us to have the right vision, we've got to have the right values. For us to make the right decisions and to be in the right direction, we've got to have the right desires. And for us to have the right goals, we've got to know what our roles are. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm thankful today to know what my role is. I'm a worshiper of the one true living God, and his name is Jesus Christ. I believe in the objective morality that all men need God, that we are all born in sin and shaped in iniquity, but there is a righteous, holy God, and his name is Jesus, and he came and died on a cross so that you and I could be free from sin. Paul was one of the greatest thinkers of his day, but he had to come to grips with the fact that his reasoning was subrogated to the all-knowing God. He had to come to grips with the fact that his will was submissive to the almighty will of God. That his ways are higher. God's ways are higher than individual ways. And for Paul, his conversion was dramatic. And the testimony of that experience was so powerful that he preached it everywhere that he went. It was because God knew that if we could just get this guy on the right path, if we could get him passionate about the right thing, he could change the then known world. And so God had a dramatic conversion experience reserved just for Paul. And as Paul's galloping along on his horse, he was more on a spiritual high horse, more emotional, mental, and psychology-wise than he was physical. God had to knock him off his physical horse and his spiritual horse. And say, hey, what are you doing? Aren't you glad that one day God knocked you off your high horse and said, hey, I'm glad you're all pursuing your education. I'm glad you're pursuing money. I'm glad you're pursuing a career. But you better be reminded of something. None of it matters if you don't put God at the very top of the list of all of your pursuits. So Paul had this dramatic conversion experience. And he used this experience to witness and he did that in a powerful way even as he is there standing on Mars Hill in the vicinity of all of these temples and this religious uh, pagan worship all of it he stands there on Mars Hill in the shadow of the Acropolis in Athens and he begins to tell them about the unknown God ladies and gentlemen I'm happy to declare to you today that we have a gospel that works in every age and in every culture I said, we have a gospel that works in every age and in every culture. And it is through his word and the spirit that we have resources to present truth in our day and to experience apostolic revival. Because we have more than just biblical doctrine. We have the outpouring of the spirit of God so that we can worship him in spirit and in truth. Oh, hallelujah. We've got revelation and we've got experience. We've got head knowledge and heart knowledge. We've got all that God wants to do in this generation to remind you and I that you can know for yourself you don't have to take anybody else's word for it God will reveal himself so that you can know that you know that you know that God is real for I feel him in my soul hmm. so the million dollar question is how do we have apostolic revival in a postmodern culture I want to give to you 15 values that I believe as a church we must espouse. Number one, we have apostolic revival without compromising truth. We must never compromise truth. 
We must be respectful of other views and be kind to those who disagree. But we can never sacrifice the truth of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I know we may not always agree on every aspect of the application of biblical principles, but ladies and gentlemen, we've got to all agree on one thing. We've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That when we ask God to forgive us of our sins, He forgives us. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that our sins are removed. And it's through the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ that our sins are remitted or forgotten or the record is expunged. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the infilling of the gift of the Holy Ghost by the evidence of speaking in tongues that we are regenerated and we have a resurrected power that is within us. It's important for us to know this because come next Sunday, we're going to be announcing some changes in our church and I don't want anybody to misinterpret for us to feel like the division of our future somehow means that we're going to leave the values of our past. We aren't. The values of our past are values that are rooted in the word of God and the word of God is forever settled in heaven. It never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is what we hold strong to. This is what we believe is the answer to a generation of people that are lost and dying without God. It's still the gospel that will change people's lives. It is still the power of God's word that makes the difference. You can't save people through good acts and good works. I'm thankful for what we do through Hands for Healing and all the people we feed on a weekly basis. I'm thankful for all that our church does in missions and we have a mandate to go and we do that. But I'm going to tell you something right now, ladies and gentlemen, you can't save people with good acts and with good works. You can't save people with hand downs. You've got to give them the truth of the word of God. It's the gospel that changes a life. You can't win a person through fellowship alone. You can't win a person through your personality alone. You can't win a person through the singing of good music. It takes the word of God. It takes the truth of who Jesus is that changes a man or a woman. Oh, I'm thankful for the truth of God's word. I'm thankful for an apostolic message. I'm thankful for the doctrine of the death, burial, and resurrection. I'm thankful for Acts 2.38. What must we do to be saved? You must repent of your sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for their missions. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We must never compromise the Word of God. It does not matter what's happening in the culture around us in terms of what we believe from the Word of God. We must always hold fast to our principles of the Word of God. Number two, we must be humble in presenting truth, acknowledging the sovereignty of God and the limits of our understanding. Ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to understand everything on this side of the Jordan River, if I can use that analogy. You're not going to understand everything on this side of heaven. You're not going to understand everything on this side. There's going to be some things you won't know until you get to heaven. But I'm okay with that and I hope you're okay with that because I trust God and I know that God's got my future in His hand. And though you may not be understanding why you're going through what you're going through right now, you may not be understanding why you're facing a trial or some trouble. It could be sickness in your body, a financial crisis, or it could be even something to do with a family member. I've come to tell you, it's going to require faith. We'll never get to a place where everything's going to make sense. Sometimes we got to just back up and say, God, you know the way that I take. 
and when I am tried, I shall come forth as gold. You have to understand there's limits to what all you and I can understand. And so we must accept the sovereignty of God. Number three, we must accept and love people as they are, even when we do not approve of their choices or behavior. I want to say that again. We must accept and love people as they are, even when we do not approve of their choices or behavior. Just because I love somebody, just because I'm reaching for somebody, does not mean that I'm endorsing their behavior. You've got to understand there's a difference between a person and the choices they're making. Every single human being has value. I said every single person has value. And though I may not agree with the way you're living your life, that doesn't mean that I don't love you. And that doesn't mean that I'm not going to speak the truth in love. I'm going to tell you that Jesus still loves you. And Jesus died for your sins. And though you may not look like me, act like me, and live your life like me, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. He loves everybody. And we're going to reach everybody that we can at every level that we can. We've got to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is designed for every single human being. Number four, we must build authentic relationships that incarnate truth. The Bible says we are epistles that are read by all men. Number five, we must use the narratives of scripture to illustrate truth. But number six, we must use personal stories and testimonies to illustrate truth. The Bible declares truth. But what God has done for you gives you the ability to illustrate truth. You can say, here's what says the Bible. You can teach, you can preach, you can share with others. But when you tell them your own personal testimony, that's what resonates in a postmodern society. When you tell them, let me tell you what happened to me. Once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was blind, but now I see. That's what we're talking about, true worshipers. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. Oh, hallelujah. I'm thankful for the doctrine. I'm thankful for the Word of God. But I'm thankful to know that this is not just some antiquated, archaic gospel that's not relevant for a postmodern society. Ladies and gentlemen, everything that this world needs, we find in the Word of God through the experience of His Word. It resonates because... It applies to us directly. I've told you this before, but a number of years ago when I was in law school and I was studying in Oxford in England, and they had asked me to pray at this deal down at the ends of the court in London. They knew I was a minister. They said, when you pray, you know, don't pray in Jesus' name because that may offend some people. And don't pray and say, our Heavenly Father, that may offend some people. And I just came and said, well, how about if I pray to whom it may concern? They said, oh, that'd be good. And so when we got there and everybody bowed their head, I was sitting up at the front table with all these Supreme Court judges and all this stuff, and they said, and so I stood up and said, and so, you know, you've heard the story. I threw my hands in the air and said, dear Jesus, our heavenly father, made everybody upset. I didn't want to not declare the name of Jesus on my watch. I said, I'm going to declare the name of Jesus because I don't know if these walls have heard it in a long time. I don't know how long it's going to be before they hear it again. But you know what? While I'm alive, I'm going to declare the name of Jesus. Oh, the Bible says, don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It don't matter if you're at Walmart or Walgreens or Target. 
You ought not to be ashamed to say Jesus is the answer. Oh, hallelujah. When I think of the goodness of Jesus, when I declare the name of Jesus, there's joy, there's hope, there is salvation that's associated with the name of Jesus. We don't just declare the truth. We declare it in word and spirit. That means there's got to be some passion to it. We're not just up here giving a lecture. I'm telling you what I feel. It's a, like the Bible says in the Old Testament, it was like a coal of fire that was on the prophet's lips. There was something inside of him that declared it. So when you're in those settings, you, you can't just tuck your head and try to melt into some sort of world of scholastic excellence. This is the pressure I'm sure that Paul felt as he stood there at Mars Hill with all these Epicureans and Stoics. And he quoted some of their own prophets. He was or some of their own poets. He was very careful in the way that he presented it, but he didn't equivocate. He told them about Jesus and his resurrection power. Well, after I got on the bus, one of the teachers came back there to me. He said, you know you weren't supposed to pray in Jesus' name. I said, I know, but I'm a Jesus' name preacher, and so it's not just what I do, it's who I am. And he said, do you talk in tongues? I said, yeah. He said, have you ever had a fake experience talking in tongues? And I said, no. He said, then how do you know that what you've experienced is real if you've never had a fake experience to compare it to? Of course, we got into a great discussion about you prove something by authenticity, not by counterfeit. And as we talked about it, he said, but for you to explain an objective truth by what you've personally experienced, which is a subjective experience, it doesn't put you in a position to be an expert witness. I said, but I am in a position to be an expert witness about what happened to me because I know more about what happened to me than you do about what happened to me. <laughs> so he said, what happened to you? So I told him what happened. Again, this is a postmodern society. This is a culture that is okay with whatever you're... That's why you should never shy away from your testimony. Here's what's so great about the Word of God. It combines the objective truth of His Word and the subjective experience about the Word being made flesh. The Word being made flesh was more than just the incarnate of Jesus Christ. The Word being made, in the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When the Word of God, it comes into your heart through the outpouring of the Spirit of God, which is also the essence of God Almighty. When you understand that God is God manifest in the flesh, that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh, then you also understand that the Spirit of God is a manifestation of God Almighty. So that when you and I declare truth and the Spirit of God fills us, and the Bible says the evidence of that is that we would speak in tongues or words that we didn't understand. That is the manifestation of the Word of God once again being made flesh. So that you and I can say, hey, you don't have to believe this if you don't want to, but let me tell you what happened to me. I used to be a doubter too. I used to not believe also, but God got a hold of me. Whoa, I went to a Pentecostal church. I felt the Spirit of God. And it wasn't just believing something. I experienced Him for myself. Hmm. So we illustrate truth based on what God's done. Number seven. Create meaningful worship environments that transcends the intellect. There's something about when people feel the presence of God. This is something I want you to understand as a core value of who we are as a church. That when people would come into these walls, that they could feel the power and the presence of God. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, we can't manufacture that. We can't manufacture that with music. We can't manufacture that with lights. We can't manufacture that with new seats. We can't manufacture that with video screens. We can't manufacture that with movies. We can't manufacture that with everything that stimulates our natural senses. But when the Spirit of God is there, it is an undeniable experience. And everybody, man, woman, boy, and girl, can know that God is real. For I feel Him in my soul. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to keep on lifting up the Lord. You know why? Because the Bible said if He be lifted up, He will draw all men nigh unto Him. That means that when we get together and we begin to declare the glory and the greatness of God and we feel His presence. That's our greatest outreach tool because when you feel His presence, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is real. And that worship is a balance of spirit and truth. You need the rock and the revelation. You need the instruction and the inspiration. You need the faith and the fact. The word and the spirit. Number eight, rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to transform attitudes, thinking, and behavior. Don't force the issue. Trust God. I said, trust God. When you force the issue, you force God out of the equation. I've seen people get the Holy Ghost, and before they can even get back to their pew, a good brother or sister got their arm around them, and they're telling them they got to go home and break their television, and get rid of everything at home, get rid of their pants. And all before they can hardly get back to the seat, would you just let them enjoy the Holy Ghost for a second? Hmm. You got to trust that the Holy Ghost is at work. The Holy Ghost can do more than you can do. Oh, we're going to keep on speaking the truth, but we're going to do it in love. And we're going to use wisdom and understanding and allow the Holy Ghost to work in people's lives. Ladies and gentlemen, the Holy Ghost is more than speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit of God working in us is what makes us want to be more like Him. It's the Spirit working in us and through us. Number nine, as people experience God's presence and recognize its reality, lead them to the Bible as the source and explanation of the experience. When people then feel the presence of God, and people feel the presence of God, all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and all different environments, they feel the presence of God. Then we have the Word of God to explain to them what they are feeling. Number 10, point to Jesus as God manifest in the flesh. People encounter ultimate truth not in abstract argument, but in the person of Jesus Christ. That's so important. People encounter ultimate truth not in abstract argument, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And for us to have apostolic revival in a postmodern generation, as we enter a new decade, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to understand that it's people in relationship with Jesus Christ that makes the difference. 
It's people that acknowledge that God loved me when I was unlovable. And there's something about that appreciation. There's something about that understanding and revelation that drives a man or a woman to their knees to call out to God. The man who we've become good friends with, that was our guide in Israel a number of years ago and has continued to be over the last several trips. His name's Edo. I've told you about him a few times. But Edo was a member of the Mossad, which is, uh, I guess you'd like the Navy SEALs of of America's armed forces. The Mossad is a group that's part of the Israeli defense forces that uh, are specialized individuals. He was a Navy captain and was part of a group that answered only to the Prime Minister. And they went into other cities and went into the houses of terrorists and executed terrorists in their homes. And he doesn't talk a whole lot about it, but people that know him and know us will start to share a little bit here and there. And, and uh, he, uh, over a period of years of doing tours and taking all sorts of different Christian groups, some groups of a thousand or fifteen hundred people and being the guide and taking them to all the places around Israel. And though he's a seventh generation Jew, and though he had been a leader in the Mossad and a part of this execution group, there was something that began to take place in Edo's heart. And he's a great big bear of a man. Seems like everybody in Israel knows him. Big old, big old hand like the paw of a bear. Just a big burly guy and he just be, kind of comes daddy of the whole group and makes sure everybody's safe. It's really a neat experience. And, and uh, uh, Duke uh, Westover, who's the tour guide, a guy that was Jerry Falwell's chief of staff for over 20 years and uh, has become like a surrogate father to Edo. He said to me one time, we were on a tour together, he said, something's take place to Edo. So we had lunch with Edo and Duke and I were sitting there with him and we said, Edo, something's different about you because now when you explain all these historical sites, you always say, we, we understand, we feel, we believe. And there's a, there's a presence of God about that. It's not just information. What has happened to you? And Edo sits there, this big burry of a guy, of a man, and sits there and his eyes kind of cloud up. He doesn't boo-hoo cry, but you can tell that he's, he's feeling the, the weight of what he's fixing to say. And he said, for years, he said, I'm going to tell you guys something I've not told anybody but my wife. He said, for years, you know what my background is. And he said, most of the time we executed people from a distance. But he said, there were three individuals that were terrorists that I had to eliminate up close with my own hands. And he said, for years, he said, those people's faces came to me in the middle of the night. And he said, they all came to me and asked for forgiveness. And he said, I couldn't understand why they were asking me for forgiveness. I was their executor. But he said, every night for over 20 years, he said, these men's faces would come to me in the middle of the night and they would come and they would ask for forgiveness. And he said, I never slept more than a couple hours a night for more than 20 years. And he said, I finally got so desperate. I had led all of these tours all of these years. And he said, I'd heard everybody. I'd been there when they prayed to Jesus. I heard him acknowledge Jesus in all the places that we showed him. And he said, though I was raised in a whole different belief, he said, I had to acknowledge that there may be something to what I had heard. So he said, in an act of desperation, in the middle of the night, when I couldn't stand what this was that was happening to me over 20 years, he said, I just cried out to God. And he said, I can't take it anymore. 
Can you please tell me why these men keep coming to me and asking for forgiveness? And he said, though I don't understand where it came from, it was undeniable. He said, I heard a voice say, they come to you for forgiveness because you were their judge. And he said, whenever I heard that, he said, I immediately knew that Jesus Christ was my judge and I had to go to him for forgiveness. So he said, I got down on the side of my bed and he said, Jesus, forgive me of all of my sins. And he said, immediately I felt that weight lifted. And he said, from that day until now, I have slept like a baby every night because I know that Jesus is my savior. Oh, my friend. That's what will reach this postmodern society. It's the power of Jesus Christ. And a man or a woman can feel the weight of sin lifted off of their shoulders when they stand in the power of God. The power of God through Jesus Christ to forgive us and to cleanse us and to wash us as white as snow. There's no way you and I can ever diminish that value number 11 we must appeal to biblical principles rather than traditional authority and strive to be consistent in following those principles the word of God is made up of principles and those principles are not for a particular time frame they transcend generations they transcend decades they transcend culture they transcend nationalities, cultures. It doesn't matter what it is. The biblical principles that you and I base our life upon are forever settled in heaven. And that has to be what guides every one of our lives. Number 12, instead of personal judgment or condemnation, we must offer hope, redemption, and reconciliation. I want to say that again. Instead of personal judgment or condemnation, we must offer hope, Redemption and reconciliation. You say, why? Because that's what Jesus did. It's not rocket science, ladies and gentlemen. It's Jesus that went and sat on the well and talked with the lady when everybody else wouldn't even go into Samaria. It was Jesus that offered hope. And ladies and gentlemen, it's still Jesus that offers hope to this world. It's still the message and the gospel that makes the difference. Principle number 13, we must give milk before meat. We must give milk before meat. Hebrews chapter five, we must never be deceptive or insincere. We don't exercise some sort of a bait and switch where people come here thinking it's one size fits all and then after a while they hear the doctrine of Jesus Christ. No, we're not insincere and we're not deceptive. I'm not come here today to whitewash this and to try to make you think that there's no sacrifice that's required in coming to the Lord. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take discipline for you and I to be able to walk right, think right, talk right, make the right decisions. There's nothing about that that's going to be easy. But we must also use wisdom and discernment in presenting truth and in leading converts to maturity. We can defer some doctrinal discussions while stressing the need to believe on Jesus to repent of your sins and to be born again. Those are the primary things that a person must come to terms with when they come to the Lord. There's going to be plenty of time to discuss doctrine. 
But let's not mistake the fact that it's not doctrine that saves people. It's Jesus Christ that saves people. I don't want you to misunderstand me, but I want you to get this point. The Bible doesn't say, if Acts 2.38 be lifted up, he will draw all men nigh unto you. I want people to get the doctrine. I want people to understand the truth. But he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men nigh unto him. Our job is to lift him up. So we have to exalt God in all that we do. Number 14, focus on the main purpose, which is to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. The goal is to win a soul, not an argument. The goal is to win a soul, not an argument. To lead people to Christ, not merely a doctrinal position. My job is to lead you to Christ. That we're going to speak the truth and we're going to speak the truth in love. But more than anything, I've got to have the realization that if I lift up Jesus Christ, that God will work in your life and in my life. So we must seek relationship first and doctrinal understanding will come. Number 15, speak to people where they are. Find common ground and lead them from the known to the unknown. This is what Paul did in his message to the Stoics and the Epicureans in Athens. When Paul preached to pagan audiences, he employed experience and reason and relevant cultural expressions. He appealed to creation and conscience. And he quoted from Greek philosophers and poets. But ultimately, he drew their attention to the power of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And regardless of all that we do, ladies and gentlemen, it's still the same message. It may be the dawn of a new decade, but it's still the same gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection that's going to make a difference in our lives. As he left Mars Hill and started walking to Corinth, he made up in his mind that it was the power of God that would make the difference. Because in 1 Corinthians 2.1, after he wrote back to that church that got established shortly after he left Mars Hill, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and the power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God ladies and gentlemen our faith is not in man's wisdom it's in the power of God this may be a good time as any for us to declare that the faith of men and women is what draws God near to us. It may be that as we enter 2020 and we see the dawn of a new decade, that we look back and recognize that this world has changed dramatically in 10 years. But I've come today with a message of hope. That this gospel was designed for such a time as this. I said this gospel was designed not for a perfect environment. It was designed for hurting people. 
it was designed for an immoral, corrupt world. You say, but old pastor, in the last 10 years, our country, our culture has changed dramatically. Yes, it has. But it's still the power of God that makes the difference. And if you don't believe that, all you've got to do is go back and look at the first century church. And recognize that as that church, as we read about in the book of Acts, moved from Judaism into the Gentile world, it faced a similar cultural environment. Pagan religions. It promoted, if you would read about what all took place during that time, it would boggle your mind. Pagan religions promoted sacred prostitution on temple precincts. The emperor of Rome, Nero, married a boy named Sporus. But nevertheless, the church grew rapidly, not by legal or social influence, but by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So that 3,000 people were added to the church. And daily and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus. That's what they taught and preached was Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. So as we go forward into this decade, ladies and gentlemen, I declare to you today, nothing's going to change the doctrine, the message of Jesus Christ. Because the same gospel that prospered in that environment in those days is going to prosper in this environment because it is ultimately what this world needs. The church that grew in the first century is going to grow in 2020. And I prophesy to you today that the church will grow more in the next 10 years than it has in any decade leading up to this moment. Not because of who we are, not because of our buildings or because of our programs, but because this gospel, ladies and gentlemen, was designed for this hour. We will teach and preach moral values in an immoral world. We will go into all the world with the gospel. We will share our testimony of what the Lord has done for each of us. We will build strong marriages and homes. We will proclaim a positive message of hope. Jesus came to bring hope, joy, and salvation. We will keep reaching to help people in this world. We will keep building orphanages. We will keep building medical clinics. We will keep building and developing through our hands for healing ministry. But we are reminded that the greatest food source that we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to save us and to change us. It is the power of God that gives us the ability to believe that all things are possible. It is the power of God that gives us the fortitude to proclaim as Paul did, that I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. That means there's nothing that you or I are going to face over the next 360 days of this year that's going to be a problem. There's no situation. There's no circumstance. There's no hassle. There's no hurdle that you and I can't manage, that we cannot overcome, that we are not unable to get through, not because of who we are, not because of our own effort, of course not, please don't misinterpret, but 
with the strength that Christ gives us. With the help of Jesus Christ. All things are possible. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And we're not talking here about positive thinking. We're talking about supernatural power. We're not just psyching ourselves up. Just saying, I can, I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Like the little train trying to go up a hill. There are some things that no matter how much you think you can, think you can, think you can, you can't. I can run down a basketball court going, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And I'm still not going to be able to dunk the ball. No matter how much you think you can, there's some things that you can't. You're not going to be able to do. That's the difference between pop psychology and Christianity. There are a lot of good self-help books that tell you what to do. But they don't give you the power. I said they don't give you the power to do what you know you need to do. I've read the books. Here's how to be a success. First, get rid of all your bad habits. Of course, we all know that. Number two, learn to get along with people. Number three, be disciplined and have self-control. They tell you what to do, but they don't give you the power to do what you know you need to do. I've come to tell you that Jesus Christ has all power. And he has given it to you, and 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 whosoever will. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Oh, Jesus. That's why Paul proclaimed in Acts 8, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from what? From the love of God. Where's the power come from? It comes from the love of God. It's the love of God that's the common denominator that brings us all together. He loved you. He loved me when we were unlovable. That I died for your sins. And I got a calling for your life. I got a destiny for your life. I got a plan for your life. I've got something in store for you that no changing circumstance, no changing of the calendar, no changing of the law separate you from my love for you. Ladies and gentlemen, do you believe that God loves you? Do you really believe that? I really believe that. Nothing can knock me away from, nothing can separate me or knock me off this, this rock called Christ Jesus. The Bible's full of stories of people who changed because they believed that they could change. 
after God talked to them. God called a guy by the name of Moses and said, I want to use you to save a nation. And Moses said, me, I got kicked out of Egypt because I killed a guy. I'm a murderer. Now I'm out here feeding sheep. And on top of that, I stutter. I'm slow of speech. And you want me to be the spokesman for your people, for a nation. And God says, yes, I'm going to use you, Moses. God came to a guy named Gideon when the nation of Israel was overrun by the enemy. And he said, I'm going to use you, Gideon, to save the country. And Gideon said, me, I'm the youngest kid of the poorest family of the smallest tribe in the nation and God said I'm going to use you I'm going to use you because God's love for us is not based on our ability it's based on our availability is there any room in your heart to let God in and say Lord I don't understand it all but in 2020 I'm going to say Lord I commit myself to your word and I commit myself the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ by living a life that is in line with biblical principles they could God use me Well, he used Jeremiah he said Jeremiah I want to use you to be my preacher Jeremiah said me I suffer from depression I'm the guy who's always over in the corner wondering how I'm gonna make it I'm always in a blue fog. I'm the guy who's depressed all the time. You've got the wrong guy. Besides that, I'm a teenager. I'm a depressed teenager. God says, you're the man. Aren't you glad that God sees us different than we see ourselves? What a great God. Here's what I want us to do. I'm not going to belabor the point, but here's what I want us to do. If you're willing to say this first Sunday of 2020, I may not understand it all, but I'm going to give myself completely to God this year. And I'm going to make him the focal point of all my decisions this year. I wonder if you'd step out from where you're standing and just walk down to the front. And as you come down here, I'll give you a couple of minutes. As you come down here, we're going to all pray together. Just press down just as close as you can. I give myself away. So you can That's it, just come from wherever you're at. Me. I give myself away. I believe there's value in physically making a move. That's why I invite you to come forward. I give myself away. I want us to pray together over this church. You've been such a great audience today. I give just make your way down to the front. Those of you that are in the aisles, if you don't mind just pressing forward, there's people behind you. So you can use me, myself away. Oh, yes, Lord, myself away. So you can use me. Life is Myself. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Let's sing it together for just a moment. My life is not my own. To you I belong. I give myself. I give myself to you. My 
life is not my own To you I belong I give myself Would you make that your prayer right now? Trust in your word. I don't have to have an explanation for everything. I trust in you, Lord. I believe in you, Lord. I believe in you, Lord. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you for loving me, God, when I didn't love myself. Thank you for saving me, Lord. Thank you for your mercy, for your grace, Lord. Oh, I bless you, Lord. What a great God you are, Lord. Yes, Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your power, Lord. In the name of Jesus. church we are your people we have been bought by your blood sanctified by your spirit we stand before you today God with all of our flaws all of our mistakes and all of our shortcomings and we say God we want to be a vessel of honor we want to be an instrument of praise we ask you God that as we lift you up that you would use us Lord to reach this generation. Use us, God, in our families. Use us in our homes, on our jobs, and in our schools. To lift up your name and to lift up your word. Help us to demonstrate your love to a lost world. Help us, God, by giving us boldness to declare your word without fear. To say, God, you are great and greatly to be praised. And God, as everybody is talking to you individually, I want to speak on behalf, Lord, of our church body corporately. And I want to declare into the atmosphere, God, that we are so thankful for your presence and your spirit that we feel every time we come together in your house we don't take it for granted God 
We know it's the power of God that makes a difference in a person's life. And we commit ourselves to this biblical truth, God, that we will lift up your name. We will worship you in lifestyle. We will worship you in doctrine. We will worship you in expression of praise. We will bless the Lord with all that we have. And we ask you, God, that your power would inhabit this house. We ask for the power of God to be here so that when people come in these doors, they can feel you and know that you are near. I'm asking God for your power to heal, to be present, Lord, in our midst, so that when people come forward and they're praying for the name of Jesus Christ, that the power of God is here to heal. I'm asking for the power of God to deliver. Give us your power, God, to deliver from sin, to deliver from addiction, to deliver from habits and hang-ups. God, we're asking for your power, your authority to deliver from darkness, to deliver from this evil world, the spirits that are in this place. We ask you, God, that you would deliver us from all that surrounds us in this world darkness that would try to come into men's hearts darkness that would try to come into people's lives depression and heartache thoughts of suicide we rebuke it all in the name of Jesus Christ I'm asking God for the power of the Holy Ghost I'm asking for the power of the Holy Ghost to permeate every mind every heart and every spirit in the name of Jesus. I wonder right now all across this building, would you lift up your hands and would you lift up your voice? And would you begin to declare the glory and the greatness of God? Come on, I claim my victory in the name of Jesus. I declare my victory. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord. That's it in word and spirit. Purpose and passion. We give everything to you, Lord. He got that The power of God to set free.
Presence, God. 